Greetings, programs. Hello, and welcome to Tronologically Speaking, a movie-by-minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie Tron. I'm your host, Duncan Shields, and today with me is my diligent, cool, fantastic, and well-dressed co-host, Alan Sanders from The Wilder Ride. Welcome, Alan. I'm glad to see that that thesaurus budget I put up there for you is really paying off. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is paying off. Oh, you're very welcome. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Minute 8. Are you ready to go into Minute 8? Oh, absolutely. This is cool because we, we, we get to like really start, you know, this movie. I like being here at the beginning with you. So, I mean, I know you've already had a couple of guests early on, but I, I love the fact that we're right here kind of establishing this computer world. Now, this is Clues Interrogation and the resolution, which is a sad, a sad moment. Goodbye, Clue. Goodbye forever. Question mark. Because he comes, <laughs> he comes back in Legacy, Tron Legacy. He comes back. Now, one thing I was noticing. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, Flynn does some more hot dog coding to try to get access to Clue. And uh, he's trying to find his last known location and in the high clearance memory, which seems to me a little a little hopeless because he's talking to the MCP and he's basically saying, you know, hey, I just had a spy in the super secret high security file rooms. Have you seen him? <laughs> you know, can you help me and, find uh, him? <laughs> can you help me find him? It's like, uh, no, I, I can't. Well, and this is one of those things. Again, this is a Hollywood thing. You wouldn't type stuff like this in, especially at that time. You wouldn't say, these are like real world, like, hey, go out there and find Bill. I think he was in the copier room, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not how it like, works. This is in, and it's something you talk about in the, in the screenplay in the novel. They talk about, they literally use the words, mankind has harnessed artificial intelligence and now uses it to do jobs for them inside the computer. So, I'm not entirely clear on whether or not this movie is an alternate universe or a metaphor. Well, you know, here's the problem with that. You're showing us an Apple III. You're showing us an arcade. You're showing us the, the technology of the, of the late 70s, early 80s as the backdrop of this world that we are seeing in the movie. So we are not in some ultra-futuristic world with AI everywhere. If anything... The MCP is the closest to AI, and it is learning as it goes. Like, like it's gotten stronger, smarter, and and faster because of its own capabilities, not because of anything man did. Yeah, and so I guess the, the those commands, those commands that are like would never be used at that time, or indeed even now, really. I guess the mo the only way you could really use those commands at the time would be in text based computer adventure games. You know, right. Like, Look and, at glass, pick up glass, use key or something like that. Oh, yeah, we're playing Zork. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're playing Zork. Or what was the uh, the Oregon Trail? You have died of dysentery, you know, that kind of. <laughs> Type bang fast. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> he got me. I didn't type bang fast enough. Well, and then the other thing is, and this is this is where like the inner geek comes out. What in the heck is high clearance memory? Because that's not a computer term. That's never been a computer term. That, that's that got to be something Hollywood threw in there. Yeah, well, to me, it's just like saying double top secret. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. It, it, it's, ooh, he's in an area he's not supposed to be in. 
oh, okay, because I wasn't watching the last three or four minutes. I didn't know that. But okay, cool. Put in location, <laughs> high clearance memory. That's, for me, if they had put something like, was it in, you know, looking for it, last random access memory location, whatever, I'm like, oh, they're at least using RAM for what that stands for. Or look, uh, yeah. it was last trying to intrude into the read-only memory area. Then I'm like, oh, okay. But for, again, the regular audience, especially at that time, wouldn't have known. But you look at it, I'm like, eh, you did so good with so many things. And you, you come up with a term nobody knows. Let's just type what he's doing so people can understand what's going on. But again, yeah, that term high clearance memory, it's not exactly clear. <laughs> no. Because high clearance almost sounds like everybody can go in. <laughs> it's Yeah. As long as you're, as long as you're underneath this height, <laughs> you're allowed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Programs, programs under five feet can't go in here. When you see the bridges that say, you know, trucks uh, over 14 or under 14 feet can't pass so oh that's dang right. it, i needed to take the high clearance route that's right you take the low clearance i'll take the high clearance i'll get to the mcp this could, this could be a uh a call to like uh like my wife who has a really good memory for clearance items and knows where to go find them there it is high clearance memory that's right like oh the, the rack over here has all of the summer stuff that is no longer cool but we can get it at like 90 percent off <laughs> She's got a high clearance memory. Six weeks from now, a fantastic sale is starting at 2.33 p.m. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. Oh, and they had to shoot those scenes with, like, rear projection. Because otherwise, if you just point the camera at a computer screen, you get that roll. You get that flickery, flickery roll. Yeah, because, because the, of the... the uh... The interrupt, the, yeah, the refresh rate or yes. whatever. It's picking up. It's picking up the the interrupt because our eyes can't, our eyes see it as normal, but the computer sees it as sees it for what it is, the flickery thing. So they had to do those specials so that you could actually read it, especially on those old CRT screens. Yeah, yeah, because uh, like you said, the refresh rate is was at a different hertz, and the camera, especially video cameras, but cameras would pick up that and it would look like either a flicker or you'd see like a a bar kind of running uh, from top yeah. to bottom would be rolling because the computer screen is really redrawing either every line or every other line, every like microsecond to fill up the screen. So we see what's on the screen yeah. to our eyes. We can't see that flicker, but the video or the, the camera catches it. Yeah. That's a, that's a problem in like all movies that have screens. I think these days you can actually tune the monitors to be a different Hertz so that you can not have that happen. But it's something that needs to be addressed in every Yeah, Actually, every I show. think, and I do this with my video co uh, company when we shoot videos for people. Oh, yeah, that, sure. You'd know all about yeah, this. Yeah, that no longer is a, is a problem. We And, and, and what's oh, okay. so funny is because the guys that I usually work with are a few years younger, by that maybe 10. <laughs> but I like to say right. few because it sounds better. It's still a question I ask when we... Uh, have somebody that we're sitting at a desk or something and we want to have just the edge of the screen sort of still in frame so we can see that they're usually if, if we're filming a person with their company we want their company website or their logo up on the screen so it's sort of there and i'm always asking like okay do we have a refresh problem They're like no no we don't have to worry about that anymore i'm like well okay but we used to once upon a time <laughs> so, and, and, well we used to you know yeah you know let's get just let's do a throwback to an 80s shoot and let's get a crt monitor and then let's see how funny you are to work with uh, okay, well, let's see. Clue got captured, and now he's on trial before the MCP. The guard calls him a pirate program, which I think is interesting, because I'm not sure that piracy was a common term in use in 1982. I don't think piracy caught on until Napster and in the 90s. But even then, once again, this is one of those things where if you're in that whole kind of computer hacking early technology where... 
there was no such thing as necessarily encoding. People used to break or hack, or they would put their own like load screens. I remember when I had the Commodore 64, um, my buddy and I, we actually came up with, quote, names because we could go in. Uh, we had different programs that would allow you to go in and sort of look at all the text that was part of a computer program. And we would change and say things like, while it's loading, it would say, this program was hacked by, and it would be like the Gamester or whatever. That's the names we came up yeah, with. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but a pirate program, if it was a pirate program, doesn't that just mean somebody cracked it or broke it so you didn't have to pay for it? It's pirated? It's not a, argh, I'm out there plundering and looking for e- <laughs> looking for gold. It's just you, pir- to pirate something basically means you're stealing it or you're getting it for free sure. by either taking away the safeguards or, you know, the... the the things that would keep you from, you know, being able to copy it maybe and, and give it to a friend for free. So sure, me, it's like a, an illegal an illegal program or right. like a, a wild program kind of. And yeah, I, and I don't know what else you would call. It. I mean, I don't mind it. It's just funny because the term piracy when it comes to computers is really about like illegal copying or you took away the company's ability to make money because you took away the. The copy protection or the, or the safeguard or you cracked it so you don't need an access key to open it and use it. You pirated the software. I mean, they still to this day, is your company using Windows without paying for it? Well, you can contact the FBI's piracy line, you know. Like, in, to me, it would be more like we've got a rogue program here. Yeah, that would be that. I think that would be a much better term as a rogue program. That'd be like, oh, that makes sense because it's not technically rogue, but he's rogue to the MCP. Exactly. Like whoever's yeah. not under the yoke of the MCP is a rogue program. Or if we wanted to even get even even more modern, it could be almost like we've got some kind of a virus here. It's trying to get in someplace it's not supposed to go. Yeah, that's something they explored in the video games a little bit, if I remember. Mm-hmm. Now I will tell you. A virus technically would be considered a rogue because it's not supposed to be there. So yeah, either yeah. one works. But I, I, I would have liked it to be a rogue program rather than a pirate program. But I think that term wasn't really, I don't know, as clear as it is to us today. But it was just starting to be talked about when people would crack programs. They would say, oh, I pirated it. Yeah, you think that term was around there? I remember it. I remember it. Again, it was that the whole term of, and people would insert little funny load screen. I mean, I... Like I said, I used to do it, too, with some of the things that I could get yeah, into. Not yeah. that I was a high-level hacker or anything like that. It was just like, hey, they didn't bother to safeguard the load screen. I can change the name, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember stuff like that, too. Okay. It's cool. I'm, I imagine a lot of my guests on here will have seen it, will have seen this movie for the first time way after it came out and may have not been born when it came out. So it'll be nice to sort of talk to the impressions of people that were around at the time and people that weren't. All of us old people that was around before computers. This was one of the first talkies I ever saw. Remember back when they put color? That was amazing. <laughs> the sound went in time with the pictures. <laughs> it was like they was talking to me. <laughs> uh, one thing I like about this scene is that the guard is so nonchalant and relaxed and not even remotely robotic. He's uh, like, he's almost shrugging. <laughs> he's kind of got this like, well, we, we caught this program out there in the wilds. Uh, I don't know. You got me, boss. Beats me. What do you think? You know, and he's got the uh, the obvious hockey gear and this big soft pads and the, yep. the air respirator. And... But you know what? I, I kind of like that. I like oh, that. I love it. 
they aren't robotic, that they aren't like, even though it's the computer world, we let the uh, set dressing and the art, or the art department show us that visually, but they're yeah. just like us. They have problems. No one yeah. program's perfect. Some are bigger and more bloated than others. Some might be more wiry. Some no more, some no less. I'm like, I kind of like that. Yeah, I like that because it could have ruined the movie if they were all walking around like, I have something to report. You know, that <laughs> would have gotten pretty, pretty dang tedious after the first two minutes, right? I agree. I agree. I wonder if those costumes were super toasty. They looked like you know, they would I, be really warm. I had read something a while ago, and I'm sure you've got more of the – and you may have already talked about it. But the the way they shot this was sort of like black and white and then had to go back and repaint over it to get the color. Yeah. It was a very complicated process. They would film. They were. They originally did tests against a white background, and then they realized that they would have to use like there wasn't enough lights in Hollywood to create the shots that they wanted to make if they were going to have a white background. So they went with a black background because that's just like it's much easier to create a black background than it is to create a white a white background in mm-hmm. terms of power. So yeah, they would take the black. They would key out the actor. And this is a process that they did for this film and I think no other because after this technology was invented where you didn't need to. So they were using photographic principles of the time mm-hmm. where they would take take it, that one piece of film, that one frame, blow it up to like three feet by four feet or whatever, cut out, like take out the black and then key out, like a keying it out, but not in a in a computer or a Photoshop kind of way, like removing the black with like chemicals and emulsion and then going in and cutting out their face and doing a pass with like just their face and then cutting out their teeth and their eyes and doing a pass with just their eyes and their teeth and then doing a pass on their body and then cutting out all like remember they're wearing white leotards that have been literally drawn on with sharpie mm-hmm. right like the costume designer is in there with sharpie just drawing on the white leotards that they're that they're wearing and then they would take out all of the little black lines, cut all of those out, and then they would lay that on a on a red light. So a red light would be shining up through the absence of the black lines. So that's where you get the the glow from. And then that would be enhanced by effects animators that have been working with Disney for a long time or the team that was over in Taiwan that was doing the the bulk of all of the sort of uh, grunt work and rotoscope work on 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 that. So it was like some shots had thirty layers of the same frame of film cut into you know reproduced thirty times, cut out in thirty different ways and overlaid on top of each other, and then take a photograph of that, and then have amazing. to do that for every every frame. Like the brute force that was necessary, and sometimes they made mistakes. Like you'd have a little blast of color. Sometimes the the color would just ramp up over a frame by a factor mm-hmm. of two and then, or a half an F stop. And then it would go down again. And they're like, what is going on? And so they called Kodak and Kodak says, well, you're using the film in the wrong order. The boxes that the, like the 85 boxes of film that we sent you, uh, they all, they each have a number on them and you have to use them in that order because the way we created them, if you want to get like, there's little variations in them, but if you're using them in order, you won't notice and they just put all the boxes in the loading bay willy-nilly. <laughs> so they were just 
they're just grabbing a, a, another box of film to start their next shot. And they're like, so it was ramping up because they were using box 85 next to box seven. And they were like, oh, no. Hmm. And so, but all that had been done and they couldn't redo it. So it was like, okay, well, what are we going to do? So there'll be, there'll be scenes in the film where there'll be a pulse of light will race along one of the, the glowing lines in like the jail cell, for instance, or in, uh, when they're on the solar sailor, a pulse of light will go by in the background and that will light up the scene for a second. But that was the pulse of light was added in post to give an excuse for why the scene went suddenly bright all of a sudden. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So in some ways, maybe a happy accident, it created work. Yeah. But when you go look at it, it's to me, that's even more like it feels alive. It doesn't feel like you're looking at flat textured pictures that had just been layered it feels like the pictures sort of sometimes move and pulse as if they've got electricity or you know that the the light bars are moving through people yeah there's something going on there's always something humming in the world that that is happening underneath the skin of it and i think that is a wonderful way of depicting like if you're living in a circuit board that's kind of what would be that's what would be happening anyway so it is it does it did add to the film for sure i i just i can't even wrap my mind to do all of this manually, to, to know you've, you're just on the cusp of understanding how a computer can do certain things, yeah. but to, to do the, I mean, this is like how Andy Warhol used to make his colored, you know, prints that he would, you know, look at an image and say, okay, now I'm going to take, I'm going to cut out these pieces and now I've got layer two and now I'm going to cut out these pieces and I've got layer three and I'm going to cut out these pieces and he'd go like eight or, or nine or 10 layers and then each one would get its own color and then he'd put it all back together and you'd get the, you know, his everybody knows his pictures of like you know multicolor prints of famous people or objects or things but i'm trying to imagine i mean how hard that was just creating maybe one poster and this is like 30 frames for one second <laughs> or 24 i guess 24 frames per second with film at this time so 24 still that's a lot and if 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 just one of those has 30 or 40 or 50 layers layers because of the complexity of the shot that means However long that shot is, it's times however many frames per second times that 30 or 40 layers. I mean, that's yeah. tens of thousands of layers for maybe a 30-second shot. Yeah, it's like we were talking about in the last minute with them entering the coordinates by hand. You know, whatever you do is times 24 frames a second. You know, so if you've got 30 layers for one frame, then that's times 24 frames per second for a 90 minute movie so everything you do you have to have that in the back of your head like okay if i'm doing this for one frame i'm gonna be doing this oh my a god a lot you know that's amazing i you know it's it's that now as adults that makes us for me appreciate this movie and the innovation and the and the advancement in technology that disney was willing to invest in whether the movie you like it or not whether you thought it was good or not all of those techniques ended up being used somewhere else down the road. Disney has always been, in my mind, one of those companies that's not afraid to pioneer. And even if they had lulls yeah. where they were kind of like riding on their laurels, you kind of always look back. They were not afraid to at least try to push the envelope every now and then. And I think this was one of those benchmark movies that did that. Yeah, the, the Disney now sort of has this hybrid existence of, to me, swinging between the two states of being safe and stead and... You can call it dependable, but you can also call it predictable. 
uh, but also on the other side, they've been very, very right on the cutting edge and the avant-garde and taking risks and trying new stuff when they, when they need to. And that's been something that's always been a strength of theirs and a strength of like Walt Disney himself from back mm-hmm. in the day. So Clue insists that he must have gotten in there by mistake. Mm-hmm. He gets uh, asked who programmed him and then he gets thrown over to the wall where he sticks energy coursing through him as he screams. Again, this is some awesome screaming from Jeff Bridges. I imagine being there like in a, in a white leotard on a black set with like zero idea about what you're actually saying in terms of terminology and only a bare grasp of the actual concepts of the film. And he's just in it a hundred percent. Like that's a great scream. Like, you know, I imagine leaning against that wall and saying, okay, you're being electrified by a giant computer program and you're like, okay, cool. What's a, what's a, what's a program? And it's like, okay, the bad guy is over there, <laughs> you know? Right. And just, just give it a good scream. And you're like, okay. And then to do four or five takes of that or six takes of that or something and have it be fresh every time. It's incredible. Now with your research, how did they do sort of the energy pass where it looks almost like there's electronic animation coursing from one side of his face to the other? There were several different techniques that they used for this. Now, when he's screaming and they're, uh, he's like shuddering and his whole, his, his whole, he's like coming apart of the seams. They used like, um, you know, like the big wide sheets of plastic over fluorescent lights. Yeah. They kind of got like hundreds of little pyramids on them. They mm-hmm. would use like a, a screen like that and they would put that like an acetate ridged thing over it. And that would sort of kaleidoscope the figure just a little bit. Or they would put um, platinum mesh screens over the lens of the camera, and that would sort of pixelate the image a little bit. So they would do four or five layers of old-school effects like that. But to have the electricity go from one side of his face to the other side of his face was just straight-up hand animation, just old-school animators that knew that had been animating electricity in, like, the Black Cauldron and all these other movies for the last 30 years, they were just like, okay, yeah, that's no problem. I can animate some glowing electricity going from one side of his face to the other. That's amazing. That that's, that's art. I mean, we're watching art. It's art. It's full on. It's full on art. This whole movie is such a work of art. You know, look back on it now. It's still so ironic. This is, this will be, this was mentioned before and I'm sure it'll be mentioned again, but it was ironic to me that it was disqualified from the Oscars that year because they thought that computer animation was cheating. Yeah, yeah. And and they had these are these are Hollywood people that had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. They just they were sold the Hollywood version that, oh, if I want a computer to write a term paper for me, I just have to say computer write my term paper and, and that's <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Just tell it to go. Just tell it to do it. <laughs> um I know with your um uh thumbnail or or episode eight, minute 8 for today, I wanted to point out that I've always loved this about art how it can trick your eye because obviously the wall that Clue is up against is a flat wall and the lines coming down are kind of flat. But because of the way the lines sort of come down where his hands are, it almost looks like it's three-dimensional. Yeah, a little bit. They are. They are projecting out there. And and I I love how this movie will sometimes take advantage of the fact that there are optical illusions. You can trick the eye. You can create the sense of either depth or space by whether lines converge or not, even if it's on a flat two-dimensional surface. So I think it's just kind of neat to have these these little touches here and there as well 
that make it feel that, okay, yeah, it's a flat world, it's a circuit board, but it also looks like that circuit board's popping out and coming at you. So, kind of neat. Yeah, I never noticed that before. That's really cool. He uh, he delivers one of his favorite, my, one of my favorite lines in the movie that I used to I used to say to myself all the time. Forget it, Mister High and Mighty Master Control. You aren't making me talk. <laughs> and he's got a tears in his eyes, completely believable exhaustion and resignation and fear. But one thing that's uh, interesting is when he was Clue in the previous scene, he was like, "Let me at him." Fantastic. Bit, what do you think we should do? Can we merge with this memory bit? He had a, a real, that kind of delivery, that kind yeah, of robot Yeah, it was almost a little delivery. staccato in its delivery, a little, little clipped here and there. Right. Yeah. But then here, he, in, in the interrogation, he starts off a little bit in the beginning where he's like, oh, I must have gotten in there by mistake. But as soon as he's on the wall, he's like, forget it. Forget it, Mr. High and Mighty Master Control. He's just full Jeff Bridges. And I had no trouble rolling with that as a kid because to me it was like the artifice had been removed. Like he's now been tortured beyond pretending and now he is just who he is. Yeah. You know what? And looking at it from a from a perspective of the performance of an actor, I actually – this has never really bothered me because I always felt like he had a mission and so he was kind of in that sort of commander or you know like almost a militaristic role in my mind. He was like – do you think we can merge with this thing bit? You know, like not necessarily that he was doing a computer voice, but very focused. Like this is my job. But the minute he's captured, he no longer has a job. He's done. Like his program no longer functions the way it's supposed to. So those safeguards are gone. Did you notice this too? And and this always got me as a kid. And still to this day, when I watch, when he says, you know, you're not making me talk and you hear the MCP say, suit yourself. And there's a pause. He almost yeah. looks like, oh, well, maybe he's going to let me go. Like, there's almost a sense of relief for a second. Yeah. And then when the energy hits, it's like, oh, no, no, he meant it. I'm, I'm gone. <laughs> yeah. Like, I have been thinking about that moment because I made a note on it that he's got like a moment of hope or triumph when the MCP says, suit yourself. And I don't know if he's thinking, oh, he's going to let me go or if he's thinking, oh, sweet, he's going to kill me. You know, because I can't take much more of this. And then when the actual de-resing starts, of course, it's horrendously painful and he screams. But like, I think I remember when I was a kid, I really thought that when he's like, oh, suit yourself. I remember feeling as a kid, oh, and there's a pause and his eyes light up. And I was like, oh, my God, he's going to let him go. That's wild. And then the de-resing starts and it's violent and it's really horrible. And his scream is super real. And I was like, oh, geez, okay, and I'm so shocked. I'm like, okay, yeah, he's not going to let him go. And it comes across as a moment where the MCP might have been toying with him for a second, like just hovering above the kill switch for just just a second and then going for it. And it seems like something like that's what the MCP would do. He seems sadistic. Yeah, and and I'm glad that you – because that's exactly how I felt when I was a kid watching it. And to this day, because of that, I don't think of it as, oh – it's a smile of nobility that he stood up to the MCP. And maybe that's what Jeff Bridges was thinking, unless, you know, you've interviewed him. I don't know. I still see it as that hopefulness. And I think when I have that glimmer of hope and then all of a sudden he's killed that to me. And as a kid was almost more shocking and horrifying. I'm like, Oh, they killed him anyway. He thought he was going to, you know, he, he, Oh my God, like he's gone. (laughs) 
Yeah. It was, it was shocking. Yeah, it hit hard. This scene hit hard when I was a kid, for sure. Uh, so, let's see. Yeah, he, he, then the music, he screams his head off, and the music builds to a crescendo. And then that's it. That's it for Clue. Clue gets derezzed in a, a fantastic series of, uh, those, those arrows passing through him one by one, reducing him to a lesser and lesser being, going from like grid to dots to glow to nothing. It was just such a wonderful passing of scraping away the layers of who this program is until there's nothing left. That was really evocative to me as a child as well. I was like, wow, that's, that's a complete erasure. And it's not a snap of the fingers erasure. Like it's, it's like somebody taking away your flesh, then your veins, then your bones, you know, then your nerves or something. Like it sounds like a really total and complete wipe way yeah. to go. It's, it's watching somebody being digitally filleted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I don't care how, quote, short it may seem to us watching it. I just can't even imagine feeling yourself being slowly erased. And then there was something as a kid. It's one thing because you've seen movies where people die, they get shot. You're kind of by, even even as an 11, 12-year-old, whenever you saw it, or if you were, yeah. whatever, you still saw people die in movies, but they their body was kind of still there. You could still hold or mourn. They were gone. Like, yeah, they were gone. It's like you are not even just dead. You're now erased from memory. You're not, you, you're, you're not even a memory. Yeah. That was one of my, or things that would haunt me a little bit about like Star Trek and, and, and other shows like that, where they would, if you got hit with a phaser set to kill, you would just disappear. Oh, um, in Star Trek two, when same movie theater that we talked about, you know, in the last episode, yeah. that when I, my mom dropped me off with my brother, we went yeah. to go see Star Trek two in the exact same theater. Probably a couple weeks later, right? Because they came out like right next to it. And I will never forget, once again, we wanted to go, beg my mom and dad, but we had seen Star Trek, the movie, a couple of years before. Yeah. And my mom and dad, I remember they were so excited. We had our very first VCR, okay? This is way back, right? Our first VCR for our family. And was it a top top, top loader? Was it a top loader? loader, Ejected style, where like mechanical. And uh, yeah, no remote control. It was all manual. If you wanted to go up and pause the movie, you had to go walk up and hit the pause button or hit the stop yeah. button. Um, yeah. My, someone my dad worked with had the movie. And he said, well, I'll let you borrow the movie so that way you've got something to show your kids. And so he was like, oh, guess what? We're going to watch this really cool movie. And so we put in Star Trek because we, you know, I love the, the show growing up. My mom, my, my dad, yeah. my mom, not so much. My dad loved the show. So we're watching the movie. And I'll never forget. It wasn't their cup of tea. So when they heard that they had made a sequel, there was no way you were dragging them to the theater because they were like, after that boring right. movie we saw, are you kidding me? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, for cool sure. It because sure. the preview has all the, like, the ship-to-ship combat. It looks more like Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. My mom was having nothing to do with it. Now, I'm sure my mom would probably be shocked <laughs> to see because that movie, that whole scene where they put the little you know space slugs into the, on their face and they crawl into the ears, horrifying yeah. to this day but getting to I think talk it's, about it's the, burned in it's burned into the memory of a generation yeah right that's like nightmare material oh exactly and later when you know you see um the the captain of the reliant decides to kill himself and he shoots himself and the guy that tries to go and, and hit kirk in the back and gets shot uh when they first land inside of uh the reliant base there on the moon yeah yeah i'm like oh my god how does anybody know that the person's not like just in hiding? I mean, he's dead, but there's nothing left. There's no, you, you can't bury anything. That's just, that's horrifying. 
Yeah, and I imagine investigations must be almost impossible. There must be some <laughs> sort of residue detector or something, some hand wavy. All right, but back to back to back to Tron though. Okay, <laughs> sorry. I was thinking at some point of just going over the movies of the summer of 1982 because there was like oh my god, nine of them, so many nine of them in a cluster. One of the reasons why this movie didn't do so well was because it came out in that glut of movies, and uh, I think. People say it flopped because it was ahead of its time, and I think that's partially true, but I think a lot of those movies, like Blade Runner and this one and The Thing, I think partially they flopped because just the sheer ridiculous competition that was happening in oh, that yeah. six-week period. Of the- what you had The Thing, you had uh, E.T., you had, uh, like you said, Blade Runner. Um, there was yep. uh, Poltergeist came out. Yep. Um, so you just these... And I, I think yeah. every and of then, these movies, Star was, Trek Two and uh, and the uh, the Road Warrior, well, all Conan these movies, the, and every one of these Conan movies, the by the way, is in my pantheon of like must haves and still some of my favorite movies to this day. Uh, okay, in the in the Tron novel, uh, Clue manages to get his arm uh, almost free, and then bang, gets back to the uh, prison wall attractor. And uh, I was thinking that his. His forget it, Mr. High and Mighty Master Control makes more sense with the earlier sort of Western speak he was doing. Like he was like, it's the long arm of the law. And, uh, well, let's see what old Flynn wants us to do. You know, that whole old West uh, talk he was doing earlier in the novel that didn't make it into the film. But mm-hmm. it's like he reverts to that for forget it, Mr. High and Mighty Master Control. One thing that's interesting about the screenplay is that Clue is brought in in electronic energy ring chains and his feet are in sockets like sark's foot sockets when he's talking to the mcp Uh, but this but this time the energy is deadly and and torturous mcp is hovering in front of him and he dissolves from the foot energy sockets up instead of by passes on the wall so the mcp gives sark power through his foot sockets but the foot sockets can also be used to torture and fry a person so i i i prefer the movie version but i thought that was an interesting an interesting thing to think about yeah no i i agree with you i think um hearing you describe it i mean we didn't see it animated so who knows but something about being sort of pressed against the wall it's an image we can we can get an idea of being chained to a wall or shackled to a wall but this time it's it's energy holding them in place and yet to be derezzed like we see it, and the the, the the triangular bars kind of whipping through them, and each one's a, an erasure pass. Like, it's pretty evocative the way it is. Yeah, totally. Well, I don't know. I think that brings us up to the end of minute eight. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think that uh, it encapsulates this, you know, sort of sort of brings an end to um, this first foray into the computer world for us. Yeah. Because uh, okay. do we hear? Do we hear in this minute? Get me Dillinger. No, that's 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 the beginning of that's the beginning of minute nine. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Uh, there we go. Got it. No worries. Because I love right. that we have that voiceover. So we'll we'll talk about it in minute nine. Then. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, tell us, Alan. Where can people find uh, more of you? Well, you can find me and my co-host Walt Murray at the Wilder Ride. We do a very similar podcast, uh, but we don't do Tron. We do the movies of Gene Wilder, and so we break them down one minute of the movie at a time. Our season one was Young Frankenstein. Our season two was Blazing Saddles. And coming up in early 2020, we will be doing Silver Street. So we're very happy about that. You can find us anywhere you can find a podcast or a podcaster. Excuse me. 
You can find us anywhere you find your podcast by just typing in The Wilder Ride and doing a search. We're on almost all of your typical ones, including Spotify, Himalaya, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, etc. We're also on social media, The Wilder Ride on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We even have a closed listeners group. So if you go to our public Facebook page, the Wilder Ride, uh, excuse me, face, Facebook.com slash The Wilder Ride. From there, there's a button that says Join Group. It's a closed listeners group. Kind of keeps the discussion among all of our fellow fans and listeners. We have a lot of fun in there. Anything to do with entertainment. It doesn't have to just be Gene Wilder. The only rules we have, no politics, no current events. Just be nice to one another and let's talk entertainment and have some fun. Um, and that's it. Just thewilderride.com is the website if you want to check out who we are and learn a little bit more about us. Nice. That sounds like a lot of fun. And if you want to get in touch with us, check out more at tronologicallyspeaking.com. Drop us a line on Twitter at tronologicallyspeaking. Send us an email at tronologicallyspeaking at gmail.com or join us on Facebook at the Tronologically Speaking, the Tron Minute by Minute listeners page. Uh, the intro and outro music were created by Roman Forster over at Pond5.com. I recommend going to them if you want some royalty-free music. Special thanks to the Star Wars Minute that started it all. Go on over to MoviesByMinute.com and see if your favorite movie is there. And if it isn't, get on it. Start one yourself. Get in there. Do that podcast. If you've got a passion for it, it's a fantastic way to do a deep, deep dive on something that you love dearly. And it's a very inclusive and encouraging community. So there's lots of help available if you haven't done it before. Totally agree. The, it, it's, it's different than radio. I just had this conversation uh, with another podcaster. It's amazing because I do have one foot in radio and it is such a competitive, we want all the listeners, we want all the ratings, we want to be number one in our QM podcasting. Everyone wants to see everyone succeed. Everybody's kind of got their own take anyway. They got their own niche. You will not find a more inclusive and supportive group of people than just as long as you're open to asking a question, you'll get the help. All right. You want to do a little end of line on three? <laughs> Let's try it again. Let's try it again. All right. One, two, three. End, end of line. Pretty close. Close enough, I think. <laughs>